0: So as we begin, began studying through the Unlocking the Bible series, I want to review real quick where we've been. The first message in this series, we talked about the object of the Bible is personal change, right? The Bible expects us to change. And as we look at Bible study, it's all about personal change. How is the Word of God going to change us and conform us to the image of, well, the plot, right? And we know the plot of the Bible equals who? Jesus Christ. The whole thing is written about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, there we would assume that the Father did it, but then we go back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word did something. Do you remember what it did? It created everything that is. So we find out that the creator of the universe, the creator of earth, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And uh, so we know that the scope of the Bible from beginning to end is Jesus Christ. If we doubt that, we can go to any of the Pauline epistles. In the very beginning, he says, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ to the church of... Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, Thessaloniki, I mean, we go through the whole list, right? They're all there. Uh, So today, what we actually want to do is we want to actually begin to teach you how to study the Bible. Because without understanding that the Bible is written for man to change and know who God is, And without understanding the plot of the Bible, that it's all about Jesus Christ, if we were to just jump right into how to study the Bible, we would miss two of the important things. One, it's about Jesus. And two, it's about us conforming to what Jesus wants because the story's about him. If we didn't state those two things first, we could go to the Bible and we could actually look at it and we could actually say, I wonder how I should interpret this. And let me give you a verse that is well known for being misinterpreted today. All right, and you'll see this every year in January, okay? This verse comes out of hiding in the middle of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, where there is no vision, the people perish, right? And isn't that a great vision projection verse? I mean, to set vision for a church, direction for a church. I mean, we need vision. We need to, we need to see what God's going to do in our midst this next year. And we need to have a vision for what God wants. How many think that's what the verse means? You're like, Pastor, you're using it as the example. Right? We're not that dumb. We know if you're using the verse, that means what? It's out of context. It's not being interpreted correctly. We're using deductive study. I need to preach on vision. I need to teach on a topic. So I'm going to go in the Bible and find a verse on that topic and use that verse to defend my position. Anybody see a problem with that? So in this verse specifically, Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no word from the Lord, the people perish, or where there is no vision, the people perish. The problem is that's not what the verse is saying at all. It's not that we need to have vision for 2022 or I remember 2020 vision, right? 2020. I wonder how many churches worked that worked out for them that year. That was COVID, right? Here's 2020 vision, you're going to shut your church down for how many months, right? You know what? The verse doesn't mean that at all. Let me let me give you what the verse actually says. Where there is no word from the Lord, people die without God. People perish. Think of the word perish there. We can go to another New Testament passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not... There's the word. Greek word for the Hebrew word in Proverbs 29, verse 18. So where there is no word from the Lord, people perish without who? Without God. So we need a word from the Lord. We need a vision of the Lord. Where there is no vision the people perish. Where God's word is not told, people die. Now, deductively, I can go there and say, where well, there is no vision, so we need vision as a church. We, problem is in Proverbs 29, where's the church? <laughs> it's not even there yet. It's not even born yet. So we can't take it from that passage and say, well, this was written to the church for today. Now, is there application today of Proverbs 29:18? Yeah, why do we send missionaries to places the gospel has never gone? Because where there is no word from God, what's happening to the people? They're dying in their sins. The wage of sin is they're perishing by the letter of what the Bible says. So that's deductive study. Now I could take other ones. Judas went out and hanged himself. Go and do that likewise. Two verses in the Bible. Two of them completely out of context. But we could argue, is that God's word? Does it apply to today? Well, I can make it say what I want. And we're being very disingenuous with the text, but I'm gonna, I'll argue this point. A lot of churches and a lot of pastors today are studying the Bible that very way. I'm going to give you a five-week series on what I think the home should be. And we use um, therapeutic deism to sugar up a message that's completely out of context. It's not what the passage is teaching that they use the verse to springboard from. All of you have heard it happen. All of you are probably thinking of messages you've heard where it's like, that's not... I'll give you a perfect illustration of this from my uh, Greek class back in the day. We were studying Genesis in the Septuagint. So it's the Greek version of the Old Testament. And we were in Genesis chapter 1. And we had a, a student do a paper... I don't know how he did the paper. He couldn't have studied, all right? So I'm not going to name his name. I know who he is, and you guys have to figure out which of the 550 Bible students that year that graduated, which one he was. But he took an entire message to try to prove the gap theory. G-A-P. Okay, it was in the text. It was there. And that the gap theory is in Genesis chapter 1 because in the Greek, there is... GAP. Gamma, alpha, <laughs> rho. And it's, it's there in the text, but the problem is, GAP in Greek just means four. That's it. It's the word four in Greek. But he saw a gap, and he chased gap, and he ran off with the gap theory, and he got out Schofield's Study Bible, and guess what he found in the Study Bible notes? The gap theory. So, man, he was off to the races. This is great. Schofield is practically writing his thesis for him. This is great. Problem is, he gets to class and presents his project, and all of us are dying. Because what did we know that he didn't? The Greek word for, man. It's not gap theory. It's not GAP. Yeah, when you translate it, transliterate it from Greek to English, how would you spell gamma, alpha, rho? Well, rho at the end looks like a P. So it's G-A-P. That was his proof. The problem is, was it biblical? No. Did he use the right methodology to get the the result he wanted? No. And what did he propagate? Even being sincere, none of us thought he was trying to throw the class because he was a pretty smart guy Till then. He's a pretty smart guy. I mean, he had, you know, he had his stuff together. He could argue passages of scripture. He knew his Bible. But on this topic, man, he bit, he got bit by deductive study and it took him down a lane he would have never gone otherwise. And now afterwards, once we corrected him and instructed him and helped him, you know, you knew what his nickname was the rest of the school. Okay, I'll just say that. Um, kind of a golf term. Four. Um, so we know the plot is Jesus Christ, but now let's get into the study, shall we? We've talked about it enough, and I think all of us understand what deductive study is, but, and we'll give a couple more illustrations of that, but let's jump into actual Bible study. So as we dig in today, I want you to know what process we use for studying the Bible, because it does matter. It matters what methods we use. And the method we're going to use today is the inductive study. And it's the one that pastors and teachers over the, over the centuries have used. You know, before we had computers, before we had all this other stuff, the only thing they could do was read a passage, observe what was in it, interpret it, and then apply it. Uh, in our modern day time, we're so trendy on topics, we don't really want to know what the Bible says. We just want to know what the Bible says about a certain interest topic, and then we chase that interest topic in jeopardy of losing the context of what the Bible's actually teaching. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want you to understand a couple things here. Number one, if you teach a person to learn how to read and understand the Bible on their own, then they themselves extract the principles that they can use throughout their life so i believe personally the greatest gift that a christian can give after sharing the gospel okay this is after sharing the gospel with somebody but i believe the greatest gift that you can give any person is the ability to read and understand the bible for themselves what do we call that in the church discipleship the greatest thing the greatest gift that you can give any person or any man is the ability to read and understand the Bible for themselves. They don't have to go through a priest. They don't have to go through a pastor. They don't have to go to Bible college and seminary. You can open the Word of God. You can read it and use in the right methodologies. You can come up with a message that I could preach on a Sunday morning and, or you could preach on a Sunday morning and, and, and be accurate and articulate and apply the Word of God to somebody's life. Or do your own life. You have that ability in your hands this morning if you have one of these in your hand. It's already there. The problem is we've never been taught how to do it. And pastors don't like to give away the secrets because it's kind of like magicians, right? You give away the secret and all of a sudden the magician's out of a what? The good news is I've read my Bible and I know there's pastors all the way to the end. Okay. I read the of the seven churches of Asia Minor, and, and I see pastors are all the way to the end. So I, I, I'm OK with giving away these secrets today, all right? I don't feel like uh, uh, David Copperfield protecting how he makes the Statue of Liberty disappear, uh, or, or with mirrors and blockings. and you, know, I don't feel like I, I'm, I'm giving away secrets of how to hide an airplane or how to levitate or anything like that. All we're going to do is show you how to study the Bible in a way that is accurate, in a way that makes sense, in a way that then you can take it, digest it for yourself, and apply it to your life, so that the two things of why we study the Bible are true. Jesus becomes the center point of your life, because the whole book's about who? Jesus. And the result of reading his word and seeing what Jesus is like, will cause you yourself to change, to become more conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So the first thing I want to tell you is this, it is super duper simple to study the Bible. It's not hard. It's not hard to study the Bible. Now, is it intimidating on the surface? Yeah. You know why it's intimidating? Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is historical, that is cultural, that has religious jargon. It uses words that we don't use in our modern-day conversation. I mean, when was the last time you threw a good old propitiation out there in a conversation? You know? When was the last time that you, you really talked about being redemptive? Uh, or, or last time that you really thought of, you know, uh, your conversation using your lifestyle as an example and, and, and using the word conversation for that? We, we, don't, we don't talk like that a lot anymore. And some of you carry modern translations that have updated some of these words. Now, how many of you have uh, put on somebody else's account this last week when you paid your bills? You took money out of your account and you placed it in somebody else's account. Anybody, anybody do that? Electric company, gas company, you know, your neighbor, some contractor, you know what? We have no problem understanding what it means to put on somebody else's account, right? If I handed you my credit card and said, hey, go to the store and buy, buy something for yourself, you're going to take my credit card and you're going to go buy whatever you want. Who gets charged for it? You or me? You have no problem putting that on my account, right? But if I say you propitiated that to me, you'd be like, what? I did what? I didn't do that. Propitiation is just a fancy way of saying that Jesus Christ took his righteousness his holiness, his life, and placed it in our account. So he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I can become a child of God. Now that makes sense, right? But to say Jesus Christ propitiated himself for us, what does that mean, right? So sometimes it's intimidating on the surface because there's words that are used in the Bible that we don't talk about and using our everyday language. But overall, I'm gonna challenge you with this. It is very simple to study God's word, okay? We make it more complicated than it is. And with a couple of the right tools, and with a little bit of right guidance this morning, all of you can become experts in doing this. The difference between you and I is how much time I have in studying the Bible versus what you have. Is that fair? I mean, four years of concentrated study, more years of concentrated study plus my 12 years of Christian education plus the experience plus my devotions plus 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 okay so I've spent a lot of time studying God's word so I have an advantage I've memorized some of it but that doesn't mean you can't that doesn't mean you can't pass me and that doesn't mean some of you here already know more than I know you know why you've been around longer I'll catch you eventually you just had more study time so when we look at this, it's simple. There are a lot of things about studying the Bible uh, that, that are kind of intimidating. But most of the time we're intimidated because it, it, it's a book that's like no other book. It's a book that talks to us. How many, how many times have you read a novel and it spoke to you? But when you read the Bible, it actually speaks to you. It actually applies to your life. So there's something extra to this book as we study it that kind of makes us feel a little less competent and maybe a little more embarrassed or a little bit ashamed as it begins to reveal itself to us and we begin to see the areas in which we need to change. So let's begin in the study here. Let's jump into this thing um, and and really get into it. So there's two different types of study in the Bible. I already gave them to you. One is inductive. The other is deductive. Okay, Those are fancy words. Uh, Inductive Bible study Starts with observation, it moves to interpretation, and then it moves to application, okay? And we'll define those words in a second. Deductive Bible study is the opposite of that. It starts out with a presupposition about Scripture or about the characteristic of God, and then we go to the Bible and try to find passages that defend that position. So how we tend, how most people today tend to read the Bible if they've never been educated is deductively. The default mode of pastors who are not, who haven't taken the time to really learn to study the Bible in, in a context, in, 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 in the books that were written, in context, historically, will tend to use deductive study rather than inductive study in the way they present the text. And that is this how most tend to read the Bible is deductively, but this leads us to importing our ideas, our opinions, and our experiences. Into the Bible, which I would argue not just can, but will lead to errors as we interpret. I shared with you, where there is no vision, the people perish. So we need to have a, a vision for this year. We need a vision as a church. For Here's the vision, be like Christ. Because the whole book's about who? Christ. And the more you learn about Christ, the more you realize you're not like him. And the more you're not like him, causes you to need to what? Change. Be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So we begin to put error into the Bible. So unless we're getting a fresh word from the Lord every year, every day, then we as a people are what? Perishing. Well, what if I haven't heard God speak to me in the last day? What if God hasn't supernaturally revealed himself to me in the last couple hours? Does that mean I'm no longer saved? Does that mean God's not working in my life? And what happens is we can allow error to slip into our lives really quickly when we use a deductive study method. But in inductive study, we are the one changed by God's word because God doesn't what? He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God is not constantly moving the goalpost on me to where I can't attain a holy God who doesn't change says, this is my standard, and I want you to be conformed to it. So I'm going to use my word, the Holy Spirit, and the church to conform you to what God wants you to be. Now that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? But what if I don't hear from God? What if I well I guarantee you this if you don't read your Bible, you're not going to hear from God. Okay? Now, can he speak to you in an audible voice? He can, but his main method of operation is not to do that. Were there times in history in which he spoke audibly? Yeah. Remember when Jesus himself was baptized, a voice from heaven called out and said what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How many of you have heard the audible voice of God? It's not the natural way of revelation today. How has God revealed himself to us today? Through his word. This is how we find out about God. This is how we find out what he's like and how we should act and what he's done for us. And when we know this book, we know Christ. We know his mission. We know his ministry. And it's his word that is changing us. So inductive reasoning seeks to draw meaning out of the specifics of a passage in its context and then work to a general conclusion. Deductive reasoning aims at reaching a conclusion and then trying to specifically find passages of scripture to argue my point all right which we get out of context how many have ever had a thompson chain bible all right thompson chain bibles are are notorious for deductive study as you try to link all these different passages together you begin ripping things out of context to make it say what you want now granted it's a study bible the bible itself is good the study notes in the Bible are used in a deductive way. So how we most tend to read the Bible is deductively, but that leads us to importing ideas that can lead to doctrinal error. So let's begin to look at the six steps that are underneath the observation stage of inductive study. So inductive study has three different areas, okay? Three main areas. Number one is observation. The, every passage of Scripture was given in... A historical setting to a historical culture for a historical purpose, right? If we're in the Old Testament, we're talking about what people group mainly? The Jews. If we're in the New Testament, we're talking about what people group mainly? The church or the lost world. Um, if, If we're looking at a specific passage of scripture in Ephesians, we know that Ephesians is written to what city? Ephesus. Ephesus. And written to what church specifically? The Ephesian church. Now, is there application we can get out of that book? Absolutely. Is there interpretation in there that needs to happen? Absolutely. But before you can interpret or apply, you got to know what the passage says. So context matters. So step one is observation. And we begin to look at the words. Now, I gave you a challenge, a homework assignment two weeks ago. I wonder how many have done it now. I told you to read what book every day? The book of Jude. How many are doing it now? Sweet, there's like seven of us. All right, you're going to get all the goods out of this message. Um, Not really, because we're going to go back and study Jude here collectively, using what we're talking about today. As you read down through the book of Jude you will find out, especially if you were in Sunday school, that some of the very things we're talking about in Sunday school are are already coming out of the passage in Jude. And you're like, I didn't even know that was in there. I didn't know that those things were contained in that book. And Jude is really a survey of the entire Bible, from creation to the coming of Christ. It's all there. And there's false teachers talking about present day. There are going to be false teachers who creep into churches who have messages that sound really, really good. They sound really, really promising but they're not based on the accuracy of who God is. And that's what Jude is telling us. So when you're in an era in which you're seeing more and more teachers getting bigger, bigger crowds, and they're using God's word but not using it accurately, and they're using the ministry to get what they want out of it rather than what God wants, then beware because the end times are coming. The false teachers are already in the midst. So we got to do step one. we got to observe what the passage actually says. And when we're talking about what the passage actually says, we shouldn't just fly through our scripture reading. All right? This is where we get in trouble in our devotions, right? Because every day we want to do devotion, so we open up God's word, and we read a passage of scripture, and we want to immediately go to application. You know, when you open up your devotions, the first question you ask is what? God, what do you want me to see, do, hear, or say, right? What are the action items? And God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you get to action, before you get to application, I want you to know what the passage says, and I want you to understand what it means. And when you understand what it says, and you know what it means, then what are the odds you're actually going to do it? But if we know what to do without why or how, what's our motivation for serving? There isn't any. And this is what's paralyzed the church is we know what to do without the why. We know what to do, but we don't know who we're doing it for. So we don't do anything at all. And I'm going to argue there's a passage of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at the end of this, and we're going to do the OIA here in a minute, the observation, interpretation, and application. And I think you're going to see that Jesus Christ was crystal clear on what his expectation was and is, when somebody knows what the Word of God says, what they're supposed to do with it. He gives us clear application on it, clear instruction on it. So one observation, we're looking for words, we're looking for phrases, we're looking for what the text actually says. we're looking for characters, right? We're looking, who's involved? Is God involved? Is Jesus involved? Is uh, somebody else involved? Who are the main characters in the story? What's going on? What's the context of the story? Is it Old Testament? Is it New Testament? Is it written to believers or non-believers? Is this a story about validating who Jesus is? Or is it telling us what Jesus is going to do? So we're just reading the passage to observe. So why do I have you reading Jude 30 times for 30 days? Why? Observation, right? Taking it all in. So step two moves into the characters of Who's in the text. I want to make sure I got the right people. I'm not substituting others where I shouldn't be substituting them. You know, where there is no vision, the people perish. Well, that's written to the church. Really? Where's the church in Proverbs? Show me. Not there. You're way pre-church. Now, is there things that we can take from that? Absolutely. But to say that the church needs vision based on Proverbs uh, that passage in Proverbs is so disingenuous with the text that that's somebody who doesn't understand what the Bible is, all right? What it's teaching. Number three, we look at the grammar. I, I spoke about this when we talked about John 1.1, right? In the Greek, it's in k halagon, atheon, atheon, alogon. The logon, the Word, and theon, God, theos, are the same, and theos and logon are the same. So God and the Word are the same person, and the Word and God are the same. Are the same person. They're equal to each other. So when we read in John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we're actually saying that Jesus is who? God. And God is Jesus. They're the same person. Two distinct personalities, but they're the same being. Grammar matters. You ever want to diagram a great sentence? Go to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Actually, 1 through 12. It's all one sentence in the Greek. You want to talk about having to diagram a monster? That thing's crazy. Twelve verses, one... It's my favorite verse in all the Bible because my wife says I love run-on sentences, and Paul is my inspiration for that. So he, he just kept rambling and rambling and rambling. Off he went with that one. Uh, grammar matters. Periods, commas, punctuation matters. Um... By the way, I will say this, chapter divisions do not matter. They were added later. They are not inspired, and we have some really bad chapter divisions in our Bible. I'll just say that, and if you want to know what they are, come see me sometime. We'll talk about them. Step four, sentence structure. How how are the sentences structured? What's the subject? What's the verb? What's the adverbs? What's the pronouns? Who do they modify? Those things matter. Now you're saying, Pastor Joe, now you're talking about doing all this no, this is how pastors do it, okay? This is what steps we go through in studying the Word of God. How do we break it down? How do we know this word goes with that word, and this, this structure means this? This phraseology means this? We study these things. But the good news is you can study them too. Today, you, you've you got Bible software programs like Logos, Online Bible, uh, Blue Line Bible, um, I don't even know what they all are anymore. I use Lagos, so after that, I don't use anything else. Uh, Step four, sentence structure. Step five is the genre. Are we talking poetry? Are we talking historical? Are we talking prison epistle? Are we talking gospels? So there's different genres within the Bible of how things are written. So understanding that helps us understand certain things, like Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is right in the middle of your Bible, right? What is the overall theme of Psalm 119? The Word of God, the Bible, right? Uh, We quote Psalm 119, uh, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might know. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? We quote that verse all the time. Psalm 119 is all about the Bible. But if you don't understand the divisions in there, you don't understand that every eight verses is a story about the Bible. And every eight verses is, starts with one of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. That's why in your Bible, if you go to Psalm 119, you got Aleph, Beth, Hath, Keth. And, and all the way down, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet, from the letter A, al, the, the Alpha. That's not right. Yeah, the Alpha and the Omega. No, that's Greek. See, now I'm messing it up myself. For the Aleph, there it is, the Aleph, all the way to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. You have eight verses that every eight verses is a story about the word of God, but collectively the entire chapter is about the word of God. So it's a beautiful passage of scripture. If you go in there and try to teach on four of those eight verses, you're gonna come up halfway short of the message. So you gotta know those eight verses go together. Those, those groups go together. And then last of all, the mood. I want to know the mood of the text. Here we notice the tone of the text or paying attention to the actions, the emotions of the writer as written at the time given or to the audience in which it's directed. So we, we take, I take these six steps, these six areas, and I begin to say, okay, who's the original audience? Who are the characters? What, what is going on as this story is Un- unraveling or or showing itself so i'm looking at the words i'm looking at the characters i'm looking at the grammar i'm looking at the sentence structure i'm looking at the genre and i'm looking at the mood of what's going on in the text okay that's observation as i read through a passage and i read through it over and over again i'm, I'm looking at these things now if something piques my interest i begin to mine it out and i say okay what is god trying to do here this is the interpretation stage. So now I begin digging in a little bit, saying, what does this mean? And what does this mean to me? No, those are bad things to say. Those are both application. I can't go right from observation to application, okay? I've gotta begin to interpret. So avoid at this stage asking, what does the passage mean? Which is a question um, of application instead of interpretation. So avoid asking, what does this mean? And then avoid comments that begin with, here's what this means to me. This is, this is how we do our devotions most of the time, right? We read a passage of scripture and then we say, okay, how, now, now what do I need to do from this? The problem is we never get into the interpretation of it. What is Jesus actually asking this group of people to do? Or what is the word of God actually asking me to do? We don't process it at all. So this is a stage in which we begin, and you'll hear a pastor say, I've been wrestling with this text. Okay, I'm not wrestling with the reading. I know what it says. right? I've observed that already. I'm not wrestling with the application yet because I'm like, I don't know what that is all the way. I'm really wrestling with what is the text trying to get across? What is the main point? What is the overall teaching that this passage is trying to get out there? So we need to avoid trying to apply it at this step. So we need to go to the second step of inductive Bible study, which is interpretation, okay? So we've observed what the text says. We know who's involved. We know where we're at. We know what the sentence structure is. We know the mood. We know the genre of the passage, historical, poetry, informative or action, a parable, you know, what what we're looking at here. And now we have to put ourselves back where the first audience is. Okay, we're trying to determine what is the one thing that God is trying to get across in this text. What is the main teaching? What is the main intent for the original audience? All right, let me share with you what happens downstairs in Sunday school. And I'm not saying our teachers, but in the average church in Sunday school. Okay, there was this guy, his name was David. Okay, and David's dad told him to go out to his brother's and see how the battle was going. So David obeys his father. He goes out to the battle and he gets there and there's this giant down in the valley mocking God. And David, being a small little young lad at the time, probably an early teenager, he looks down and because of his spiritual stature of what he is, he looks down and sees the giant and he goes over to King Saul and he tells Saul what? Is there not a cause? Is Gar-God not able to beat this giant? So Saul listens to David and David goes. And uh, and, and Saul goes to David and tries to put his armor on, but the armor's too big. David doesn't know how to use his armor. So David throws off all the armor and he decides he's going to go and he's going to do battle with Goliath, right? And now we're going to look at a 13-week series on how to slay the giants in your life. What just happened? We went from observation to application without understanding what the story's there for. Is God given that passage of scripture so you can all be giant slayers? I would argue David could have slung that rock backwards and Goliath would have died. Matter of fact, I don't think David's accuracy was that great, and I don't think David thought his accuracy was that great. He said, I killed a lion, I killed a bear, but God will kill this giant. And you know what? You ever wanted to find the first guided missile? It's right there in the Bible. That stone had a theological guidance system on it that could not miss. And when David took his sling and his five stones, why did he pick up five stones, by the way? God only needed what? Yeah, there was a couple brothers that needed to be taken care of later on. It was symbolic of what God was going to do. So David picks up his five stones. He slings it. I don't know what way he threw it. I don't care what way he threw it because it had one destination. What was the destination? The forehead of Goliath. And when the rock hit Goliath in the forehead, what happened? Down went the giant. So all of you go home, get five stones today, and declare victory over your giants. What? That's not biblical interpretation. Here's the reality. Here's the problem in that story. You and I are not who? We're not David. And your giant isn't a giant. Your giant is something totally different. And a stone's not going to help you overcome. It's going to take something else. So to take that Bible story and try to tell it that way... Now all of a sudden, I'm going through a trial. I'm fighting this big obstacle in my life. I claim my stone. I threw my stone. And guess what my giant did? He ran me over. So now somebody's wrong. Is the Word of God really powerful? Is God really able? Well, when we take Scripture out of context and try to make it teach what we want it to teach it is it's going to seem very anemic it's going to seem like the goalpost moves but when it's in context it's powerful so interpretation matters okay interpretation matters you can't go from observation to application that's what a lot of people want to do today but the word of god was given in context for a reason for an audience that we can we can discover what it is so we're trying to discern the one thing that the text says by the way what is the one thing that David and Goliath teaches us. You don't have to be a mighty man of valor. You don't have to be in an army. And when God wants to overcome his enemies, what is he able to do? He can use anybody, anywhere, the thing that's in their hand, to, to overcome whatever obstacles in front of them. Now, is that consistently taught in the Bible? Can I go to other passages of Scripture and prove the same God who did that for David did it for... Fill in the blank. You all know. I see all of you mouthing different Bible characters at the same time. And that's because that is what the passage actually teaches. You don't have to be David, king of the Jews. You can be who you are, king of your little world. Right? King of your little domain. And the same God that helped David overcome his obstacles is powerful enough and able to do the same. Now let me give you a Couple chapters over from there, you run into uh, Anani- or, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Almost said Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. How to get that out. Same people, different names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when told that they have to bow down to an idol because that's a god, said, What? We're not going to bend. We're not going to bow. We're not going to worship. Well, if you don't do that, you're going to be thrown in a fiery furnace. So, when the instruments played, the guys did what? They stood. They didn't bow. So the king comes to him. Did you understand what the message was? Did you understand the assignment? No? Okay. Let me be clear. Oh, no, you did understand the assignment. So you willfully chose to rebel against my word. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying, king. We're not careful to answer you in this matter because our God, who we serve, and what was their testimony? Is able. Is your God able? If he's not, then you might be focusing on the wrong God. Because our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, did God save them from the fiery furnace? No. They went in the furnace. What did he save them from? Dying in the fiery furnace. Instead of dying, what did they do? They were cruising around. Can you imagine looking down in there, seeing these guys walking around in a fire? Like the flames don't even touch them. Their clothes don't even smell like smoke. And by the way, the fourth guy in there looks like who? What did Jesus look like before he was born? Obviously, they knew who it was. Obviously, his, his glory revealed who he was. You know what that? You know what that story teaches us? Regardless of what trial you go through, guess who's always with you, wherever you go. Our God, who we serve, is able. You think the children of Israel figured that out as they wandered through the wilderness and saw God act how many times on their behalf? It's a universal truth that's told through. So, interpretation matters. We ask questions like who's involved, what's going on, who, what, where, when, why, and how, right? The, the basic questions of an, an interpretation and observation here. Who's involved? What are they doing? Where are they at? When is it happening? How are they doing it? Why is this happening in their life? Why is God putting this in scripture for us today? Questions like this, dig out the historical context. Most of them are answered during the observation phase, but they're actually placed in in realm of importance as we begin to interpret So what we're trying to do is we're trying to discover that one main point the author is driving home to the audience. And what we're trying to avoid is importing our cultural assumptions into the text that lead us to make wrong interpretation and thus wrong application. Okay, so how many of you are threatened to be thrown in a fiery furnace? Not very many of us today, right? So what if I were to tell you, well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood for what they believed, so you should stand too because you serve the same God. Okay, what's the problem with that? You didn't go through all the stuff Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through to get to the fiery furnace. Remember, they made some decisions. They weren't going to defy themselves with what? The king's meat. They've already seen God working on their behalf. They already know their God is able to save them. It didn't take the fiery furnace for them to decide, oh, our God's able to do this. They already knew before they got to the furnace, the furnace was commencement. It was graduation. See, we told you, King, our God was able. We already knew he was. We didn't need the furnace to confirm that for us. We already knew our God was able. The furnace was our graduation to say, see, we are trusting our God the way that we thought we were. So now let's get to the third step. Let's get to application. So application, this is where I'm trying to find out how scripture connects to everyday life. This is usually taken care of by two questions. What issues am I currently facing and what steps do I need to take? Okay. What am I currently facing? What steps do I need to take? Based on these two questions, On all I've observed and all I've interpreted from the passage of Scripture, it begins to reveal to me how I need to change. Now, these are the steps I go through when I look at a passage of Scripture. Now, I want you to go to Matthew 7 in your Bible. We're actually going to do it. You say, Pastor Joe, we don't have time for this. Well, I'm going to save us two steps, all right? We're going to read a passage, but then you're going to go back after the service or sometime on your own, and you're going to do the observation and interpretation part. I'm going to assume we already did that together when I read the passage of Scripture. And then I'm going to plug in the three slots real fast and show you how it works. So go to Matthew chapter 7, look with me at verses 24 to 29, and let's read these passages together. And I want you to observe this as we, as we talk, all right? Let's read together. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Interesting. How many have heard this story before? How many know the song? We're thinking of the song as you were reading, right? Right? So, very familiar passage of scripture. So I don't have to develop it a whole lot here. Obviously, Matthew chapter seven. We're at the end of what passage? Greatest sermon ever preached by the only pastor, the greatest pastor who ever preached to the to an audience that needed to hear it of twelve men, <laughs> believers. Only the disciples were with them by the end, and uh, preached by the only guy who could actually live what he preached. Right. So it's the Sermon on the Mount, given by Jesus. Christ himself, to his disciples, to the followers. And uh, so this is the observation stage. And he's using a parable. That's the genre we're in. We're looking at a parable that Jesus is sharing with them. And uh, it's comparing two different people, right? There's a wise man and a foolish man. There is a rock and there is sand. There is one who is praised and one who is mocked. There is one who has authority, and there's some who don't have authority. Christ is the one in the story that has the authority. And who are the ones who don't have the authority? Scribes. So we, we, we got a lot of our observation already here. We got a lot, of our, uh, a lot of our characters already defined. We know the genre. We know when it was given. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We, we, we know all these things already because this is a very familiar passage to us. So in the observation... Stage, We can kind of fly through this because, well, we already kind of shared it with you. So we could go through many more observations in the text, but we're going to assume that you're going to be able to find most of them yourself, if not all of them. I'm also going to assume that your interpretation you uncover is that this is a short parable that occurs at the close of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, given by Jesus. And knowing this helps us make the application that Jesus wants us to hear. Because we know who's talking here. So this is the parable in the Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus Christ to his disciples. But the question is this. What is the text teaching me slash us? Right? So it's great. We know there's a wise man, a foolish man. We know that there's sand and there's rock. We know that there's good and there's bad. We know that there's power and not power. Uh, But so what? What does this mean to us? Well... Right now, at this stage, we could probably draw some applications out, but that's not the main focus. What is the one application Jesus is going for? What do we know about parables? Parables can have several applications, but they only have one what? One interpretation. So there's only one teaching here that we're looking for. Now, by virtue of that, there'll be applications that we can take, but what is the one thing That God is wanting to get across. Well, the main application of this parable is this. God's followers need to both hear and respond to God's truth. Do you see that in your passage? They not just need to hear it, but they need to hear and respond to God's truth. So I believe that one of the main many challenges that Christians face today is this. We prefer to hear the truth and do nothing as opposed to hearing the truth and having to change. Having to respond to it. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So the main application is God's followers need to both hear and respond to God's truth. So let's begin to mind this out a little bit. Notice the problem is not a problem with truth. The problem is not a hearing problem of truth. The problem is integrating our hearing with response, action. Is there any message for the church today in there? It's one thing to hear the Bible. It's another thing to actually do it. Faith without works is dead, being alone. You say you have faith, show me your faith by your works, right? So we know this, this parallels in other portions of scripture. We know this teaching is, is repeated. So let me, let me consider this for a moment. Have you ever attended a church on a weekend only to find yourself being spiritually convicted by a sin, a struggle, or an issue, or a problem, and then have done nothing with it in the days following? You heard a very convicting, very moving, very compelling message. You feel the Holy Spirit wanting you to change. And then you go through the rest of the week and never deal with it. Have you ever felt that way? If your answer is yes, then you have been guilty of building your house on sand. If the answer is yes, then you've been guilty of building your house on sand. That is the, the message of the parable. Um, we've all done this, by the way, including me. Jesus illustrates this with construction analogy. He says the difference between a man who hears alone and a man who hears an ax, he, he, the second, the one who hears an ax, is a fully integrated man. Jesus even adds the element of a storm, which exposes how well a man or a person integrated their hearing with their doing. All of us have faced storms in life, right? all of us have been challenged this storm regardless of how quote unquote good the man looks on the outside this storm will reveal what's actually on the inside and when the winds blow and the storm rise or the waves rise and it begins to beat on the house what the house is built on will come out of what the man actually is what he's built out of So the call of Jesus Christ in this parable is this, to be prepared for the storm by integrating all of your life with his word, both your hearing and your doing, thus building on a right foundation so that you're able to stand when the storms come. Do you see that in the parable? If you do and if you observe and do, then the foundation's gonna be right. And when the storm comes, who you trust will come out. It'll be clear. And by the way, he uses the term rock. Why would he use rock? What is Jesus called? He's the rock. He's the chief cornerstone. He, he as a builder, understands the terminology he's using here. And he's getting a point across. If you build your foundation on the right starting block, then no matter what storms come in your life, the foundation's going to hold. But if you build your life on the outside looking right, when the storm comes, guess what the house is going to do? It's going to fall because there's no foundation. There's nothing there. So now you have your application for the week, right? Your application for the week is this. Integrate the word of God into your actions so when the challenges of life come, they expose you as one who can stand. Is there another verse that talks about that? Know who your adversary is. He's like a roaring lion. He's like, he's got some darts, doesn't he? He's a roaring lion that's roaming about, seeking him made of devour. And he's like an archer that has arrows, that is firing those arrows. And you got a shield that you're able to put up and you're able to withstand or you're able to stand As the darts hit your shield. You can stand. Why? Because the shield is the one protecting you, not you, the shield. You're not the one able to stand, but your foundation will cause you to stand in the day that the storm comes. So these reveal who we are. Now I could have gone into that and say, Well, if you build your house on the rock of Jesus Christ and you're building on a great foundation, so all of you who are saved today when the storms of life come, you're gonna make it through the storm. That's not what it teaches. What it teaches is, if we know what the Word of God says, and we know who Jesus Christ is, when the storms of life come, who's going to stand for us? The foundation, Jesus Christ. And because we're built on Him, we won't be knocked down. But if we try to build our lives on us, what's going to happen? In the day of adversity, you're going to fall, you're going to fail, you're going to crumble. Because your house is built on sand. Good stuff, huh? Inductive Bible study. That's all it is. By the way, all those notes are in your Bible. All those passages are in your Bible. You can go back and study them all for yourself. See if it's not true. So, three stages of of Bible study. Observation, interpretation, application. Observation, just find out what the text says in the context in which it was given to the original audience in which it was written. What are key words? What are phrases? What are sentence structures? Genre? What does what the passage say and who's it written to? Interpretation then. What is the one thing that's being taught in this passage? What is the main point to the original audience? And then by virtue of understanding what that point is, now we can go to application and say, okay, what do I learn from what's going on in this passage? And you can do it with any portion of scripture that's out there. But what would happen if I said, you know What? How many of you want to be a wise man? Well, a wise man builds his house on a rock, not sand. Any questions? Great, let's pray. Really? That's it? What? Deductive versus inductive. Inductive, you get the whole story. You get the facts. You get everything. And then you find out what happened. By the way, our news media today, inductive or deductive people? This is why deductive reasoning is all around us today. SUV kills kid. How many rogue SUVs have you guys seen? Driving themselves. Aiming at kids. No. Driver hits kid driving SUV. Now who's the problem? The driver. And the action requires what? Change. Correction. Instruction. Instruction. But see, we can blame the SUV instead of the driver, right? By using deductive, we can control the narrative of what we want things to say. By the way, our government's doing it with our own constitution right now in our country. It doesn't matter what the original intent was to the original writers, to the original audience. What matters is how do I feel like it should be interpreted today? So our world is full of the deductive reasoning, okay? This is why Christianity stands against that. We come out and we say, what what does the Bible actually say as it was given in its original intent? And now what can we learn? What can we glean from that? And by the way, our founding fathers knew that because the majority that signed our documents, guess what they were? Pastors. And pastors knew how to study the Bible inductively. And they incorporated that into the founding of our country. And that's what's so wrong with what's going on today is we're flipping that around. Just like separation of church and state, it was always meant that for the church to be involved in the state's matters, it was never the intent for the church or for the state to tell churches what they had to do. That's what they got away from in England. That, that's what our forefathers were trying to get away from. So we live in a culture that's deductive reasoning, and we as Christians are using inductive Bible study to reach them. This is why it applies to us today. This is why it's important for us to understand this. Because now we can go with the authority of Scripture and say, this is what the Bible actually says. And when they say, well, I don't feel like it says that to me. Well, this is what it meant in the original context. And if God doesn't change and this word doesn't change, then what does God mean today even in our context? And what doesn't matter is how we feel or what we think. What matters is what does the Bible actually say. And I want you to be able to find out what the Bible says actually says as we study it together.